Resurrection Sunday. You know, we celebrate the resurrection every time that we gather. The early church, they gathered on the first day of the week to break bread together and to uh, celebrate the resurrection. And so um, we are a people that gather around that on, on a regular, but this is a day out of the year that we, that we really set our hearts and our minds on the resurrection and we celebrate it as such. And honestly, it is so much of a cornerstone to the Christian faith. And so it's right that we should celebrate. So as I considered where we would go today, I thought about 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And so if you have your Bible, and I hope you do, would you please turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Okay, so as I said, I could have gone into the Gospels, which I have done before. But uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, this may be one of the, I think, richest and most profound, as I have said, treatments of the subject of the resurrection. Now, Paul had planted the church in Corinth as he was going on his missionary journeys. He made his way through Asia Minor, up into Macedonia, down into Achaia, Greece, and uh, next to Ephesus, he spent the most time in Corinth. He spent 18 months there. And he would continue on to the next place. Uh, and at some point, he caught wind of the fact that there were some serious issues going on in the church there in Corinth. And not only that, they had written a letter to him asking him some questions about some, uh, some under misunderstandings that they were having about uh, certain important doctrines and truths. So he gives them this letter of 1 Corinthians, and he deals with uh, issues of sectarianism, that they, were, uh, they had cliques, groups, if you will, and they would designate a leader and say, well, I'm of Peter, or I'm of Paul, or Apollos, and they were suing each other in the court of law. There was uh, sexual immorality rampant in the church, and they were practically boasting in the fact that they were so tolerant of it. And so Paul dealt with these issues, uh, but he spends a great deal of time in 1 Corinthians 15 dealing with the issue of the resurrection because it would appear that that was one of the questions that they had for Paul. What of the resurrection? You know, in that culture, in that, that culture that was heavily influenced by Grecian thought, uh, they had a hard time with this idea of the resurrection because in their mind there was nothing more sinful or evil than, than this corrupt body than the material and so and they're thinking heaven is truly detaching from the body altogether being divorced from the body altogether never to return and so this idea that we will forever be in a body was uh shocking and very hard for them to come to grips with so they they asked paul uh, for more detail on the issue of the resurrection and so that's what we have before us today in first corinthians chapter 15 it's a very lengthy treatment on the subject, and honestly, I'm going to cover the whole chapter. And so this is ambitious, and I will also say that it shouldn't really be done. And so it, we should take several weeks to make our way through this chapter. But given, the, given the, uh, the occasion, I think it is fitting, and just understand at best this will be an overview. I certainly cannot just get into everything in every single verse, but uh, we will work our way through and I hope and I pray that you are greatly encouraged, that you learn something new. Uh, maybe you have some questions yourself that will be answered from this text. And as I prayed earlier, and I, I still I, I pray that our hearts uh, 
would be stirred towards Christ as we consider the resurrection and that our hope would be restored yet again in Him and what's to come because of what Christ has done for us. So with that, let's go ahead and get into, into the chapter. So 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the first portion here, I'm going to say verses 1 through 11, what we are dealing with is the reality of the resurrection. The reality of the resurrection. So verse 1, Paul says, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, and in which you stand. So Paul says, I declare the gospel to you. I herald the gospel. I proclaim the gospel. And it's the gospel that I preached to you. It's the gospel that he had already preached. This wasn't some new thing now. Paul's not saying, you know, the gospel was powerful then, but now I need to add to it. I need to somehow tweak it or change it or make it, make it more relevant or anything like that. No, the gospel stands. He says, it is the gospel that you received, and it is the gospel in which you stand. And that was, that was Paul's, that was his deal. He was a gospel preacher, a preacher of the cross. And he said, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. And so that was his MO. That's what he did. He came with the gospel. And he said, you received this gospel. And that's, that's just it, folks. We must receive the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I've talked about that word before. It's to open your heart and to open your, your arms, as it were, to embrace. The gospel has to become yours. You've heard the gospel preached. You've heard it explained, communicated. But at some point, you have to believe it. At some point, you have to receive it. At some point, you have to trust Christ. And, and Paul's going to get into the nuts and bolts of what this gospel is. And I just love how as he's going to go off into the resurrection, he starts with the gospel. Because the gospel is so central and the resurrection is such a part of the gospel. And so he says in verse 2, speaking of this gospel, he says, By which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So there is salvation and no other message. Salvation is in the gospel. And he said that I declare unto you the gospel, the same gospel that I have already preached to you, the gospel that you received, the gospel in which you stand, and the gospel by which you are saved. He's taking them back to the beginning, back to the basics. And he said you must hold fast. You must cling to this word which I have preached to you, unless your belief is in vain, unless, unless you, your belief was empty, meaningless in the first place. And, and that is a real danger. Sometimes people have superficial belief. They may intellectually assent to the idea, but they haven't really trusted it savingly, and they haven't really embraced Christ and the cross and the resurrection. So he says, this gospel, I remind you of this gospel. I'm proclaiming it to you. And you must believe it. You must receive it. You must be saved by it. And you must persevere in it. It's all about the gospel. And now, he kind of goes into what this gospel is. In verse, verses 3 and 4, he says, For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried and that he rose again the third day, according to the Scriptures. So Paul said, I deliver to you, first of all, that which I also received. Now, some translations say of, 
um, of utmost importance, you know, of, of really Paul's, Paul's overarching priority, the most important thing that he would do would be to come with the gospel. That, that had first place. And so he says, first of all, I deliver unto you that which I also received. And so the, the, the priority of the gospel message. And what exactly is this gospel message? He says that Christ died for our sins. Christ died for our sins. And this is in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried and that he rose again on the third day. This too according to the scriptures. And so as I mentioned on Friday night, Jesus died for sin. Jesus died as a sin bearer. He did bear the sins of the world upon his shoulders there at the cross. And he was buried. He died. He actually literally died. And then he was buried and then he rose again from the grave three days later and declaring victory and that salvation had been won and that the price had been paid, and that atonement had, had been made. And now God's wrath has been satisfied in Christ for those who believe upon Jesus Christ. And that is the good news for you and for me. There was no way that we could ever satisfy God's wrath. The wrath of an infinitely holy and just God, we would spend an eternity of eternities paying a debt that we would never be able to truly pay. But Jesus Christ, the Holy One, the precious and spotless Lamb of God, the Son of God, whose worth is far more infinite than anything our finite minds could ever grasp or comprehend, He died. He died, and He was able to satisfy the wrath, the infinite wrath of an infinitely holy God because His sacrifice was of infinite worth. And that Christ, He died for our sins on the cross the just for the unjust, so that his righteousness would be accounted to us and that we would be justified, declared righteous, declared innocent. And then he rose again from the grave, vindicated, proving and demonstrating that he is exactly who he says he was and that God had indeed received his sacrifice and that the payment had been made. And the resurrection is essentially God saying amen to it is finished. When Jesus said it is finished on the cross, that he had finished the work, and then he rose again from the grave, that is God's amen to Jesus. And that, that is so glorious. And that is the gospel. That's the good news of the gospel. And it is simply that. We add much to it, unfortunately. We make the gospel so often something that it simply is not. We really complicate the gospel. Excuse me kind of chilly out here so that is the gospel in its simplicity that is the gospel that paul preached to the corinthians and he starts by reminding them of that gospel and then the historical nature of this gospel it actually happened literally this resurrection actually happened in verse 5 he says in that he was seen by cephas then by the twelve after that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present. But some have fallen asleep, and after that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. So Jesus rose again from the grave, and he was seen. He was seen literally 
physically by his followers, by Peter, um, sometimes called Cephas, and by 500 brethren at one time, Jesus was seen. And then it mentions James here, and what's significant about that is James, James was Jesus' half-brother. They had the same father, excuse me, the same mother, but not the same father. But James did not believe in Jesus. Um, the Gospels indicate to us that Jesus' own siblings did not believe him when he was preaching and teaching, doing his miracles. They thought he was crazy. But something happened. When the resurrection happened, that all changed. And Jesus' brothers became true believers because of the resurrection, because of the, the, the reality of the resurrection. And we know that, that James uh, was one of the authors uh, in, in the New Testament, along with Jude, who was also Jesus' half-brother. His name was Judas, but I imagine he changed that. That was not a popular name after, after the betrayal of Judas. But there you have it. There's internal evidence of the fact that something changed. Throughout the Gospels, they thought he was crazy, but all of a sudden they seen him and they became radical believers of Jesus because of the literal nature of the resurrection. And then Paul goes on in verse 8. He says, Then last of all he was seen by me also, as by one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles, who am not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preach... And so you believe. So Paul says that he was, a, was an apostle, and he was uh, as by one born out of due time, and he was least of the apostles. And, and that was because he was a persecutor of the church. You know, Saul the, the, the Pharisee, he did not believe in Christ, and he persecuted zealously the church of Christ. But we know that by the grace of God, he, uh, God intervened, Christ intervened, that one day on uh, the road to Damascus and struck Saul down to the ground with a blinding light. And he came to, to faith in Christ that day and was radically and forever changed. He saw the risen Christ, is, is essentially what he's saying here. They, Christ has been, been seen, risen, and I have seen him too. And, and there you have it again. That was what... That was what changed everything for Paul. Paul hated the Christians. He thought that they were nothing short of blasphemers against the living God. And he made it his mission in life to ruthlessly and relentlessly chase them down and drag them out of their homes into the courts. And yet he encountered the risen Christ. He encountered the risen Christ and then everything changed radically for him from that day forward so paul's own testimony and the reality of the resurrection and how that changed everything for him so that's the reality of the resurrection it is real it is historical and now he's going to go on to talk about how it was so necessary it was very necessary and so next we're going to look at the necessity of the resurrection and this is verses 12 through 19 so verse 12, he says, Now if Christ has preached that he has been raised from the dead, verse 12, Now if Christ has preached that he has been raised from the dead, 
How do some among you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? Now this was the, the preaching of the message of the cross and the death and the burial and the resurrection. Paul said this was the gospel. This was the gospel. And this having been preached to you, how are some of you going to say that there is no resurrection? You can't be a Christian. You can't profess to be a follower of Christ and somehow say there was no resurrection. And, and believe, believe me when I tell you, there are a lot of those. Even within liberal Christianity, there are many who would say that there is no resurrection. It's pure insanity. And if you, if you have a Bible and you can read it, you see right here, Paul is going to say, how can you say that Christ did not rise from the dead? And then he goes on to build on why this is so important that we believe the resurrection. So verse 13, he says, But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is empty also. So basically, if Christ has not risen from the dead, then their preaching, the preaching of the gospel, is meaningless, it's pointless, it's empty, and so is their belief. What are you believing in then? You know, your, your belief is empty. Your belief is in vain. It means nothing. It profits you nothing. He goes on in verse 15. He says, yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead do not rise. So Paul says, furthermore, if the resurrection was a farce, if it didn't really happen, then we're false witnesses because we are proclaiming to you something that has not happened. And um, if, in fact, the dead do not rise. And so that's just an interesting thing because we consider what the apostles went through and the price that they paid. And I don't want to get ahead of myself here, but the price that they paid for believing in and boldly uh, proclaiming the gospel and the resurrection. They suffered greatly. And so he's like, look, if there was no resurrection, then we're nothing more than false witnesses here. But these were men who were willing to give their lives for what they believed and what they taught. So obviously they were not false witnesses. In verse 16, he said, For if dead the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Now, this is, this is really the, the core of it here. If there was no resurrection, then we are still in our sins. Because I had, as I had said earlier, that um, what the resurrection demonstrates for us is that Jesus really is the Son of God. He really has power over death. That God really did receive His sacrifice as full and as complete and and uh, did raise him back from the grave, uh, victorious over death. It proved that he was not a liar. It proved that he was who he said he was, that he was not a scammer or a con artist, and it proved that he was not a sinner because that was an accusation that was railed against him by the hypocritical religious elite of the day. And, you know, he was not a sinner. If he had have been a sinner, then he would have died in his sin and he would not have risen from the grave. He would still be in the grave. And so the reality is because he had risen, we know that his sacrifice was accepted and our sins have been forgiven. And so Paul says, look, if you don't believe in a resurrection, if the resurrection isn't true, then you're still in your sin. And that's, that's a, a hor horrible place to be, a terrible place to be. 
But to God be the glory, the resurrection is true. And for those who have trusted Christ, they are no longer in their sin. He goes on in verse 18 to say, Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are, we are of all men the most pitiable. And so he says that all of those who have died, those who have fallen asleep, the New Testament uses that, that, that language to, to speak of someone who has passed from this life to the next. He says those who have fallen asleep in Christ, those who died having believed in Christ, have also perished if there is no resurrection if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. Let that sink in. You know, if, if our hope is only in this life, if in this life we have hope in Christ but not in the next, that's a sad state of affairs. You know, we're a blessed people, and we have a lot to be grateful for in this life, but we have a lot of brothers and sisters around the world who don't. They are suffering tremendously in so many ways that we'll never know. And their hope truly is in, in heaven. Their, their hope truly is in their eternal state. And if all that they have here in this life is what they have, and they have no, no hope of a re uh, resurrection or the eager expectation of what awaits on the other side, then they are of all most pitiable. And so are we, quite frankly, because things are good in this life, to be sure, but the closer we get to the finish line, things start breaking down. Stuff starts falling apart. And that is why I know that so many of uh, the seasoned saints long for the resurrection. They long for the day that they will be with Christ in glory the closer they get to the finish line. And praise God, they have that hope. If there was no res resurrection, they wouldn't have that hope. And we too would be of, of all the most pitiable of men. So the resurrection is absolutely necessary. It's real. It's literal, it's historical, it's necessary. All right, moving on. Verses 20 through 23, what we see here is that Jesus Christ is the first fruits of the resurrection. That means that he is the first of many more to come. And so verse 20, it says, But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And so Christ has risen. Now, this is not the first time in the Bible that we see someone come back from the dead, but this is very different. The nature of the resurrection, he came back in glory. He wasn't just brought back to life. His spirit wasn't just rejoined to his physical body. He was resurrected into something very new, something very different. And it's fascinating when you see Jesus post-resurrection, he, he operates very differently than he did when he was just there in his three-year ministry, especially. Um, there were times where he was right there in front of people that n would have known him, but they didn't recognize him. Uh, he could just vanish. He would be here, and then all of a sudden he's, you know, over here. He's, the door is locked. The disciples are in the room. They turn around, and there he is. And so it was very evident that he was functioning very differently at this point post-resurrection and so something was very different something was very new and this was the first this was the prototype if you will of the resurrection and there will be many more to follow as a result this is the the first fruit and this is an um an agricultural type of type of term here 
um, when there would be a great harvest, there were the first fruits, and there would be uh, various harvests throughout the year, and there would be smaller harvests, and then there would be much larger harvests. And so that's kind of the, the idea here. This is the first fruit, but there would be so many more to come. In verse 21, it says, For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. And so now, he's kind of talking about those who are in Adam. And that is the whole world. And it's fascinating because in the book of Romans, Paul makes, makes this argument about how the first man, Adam, brought death, but the second Adam, Jesus Christ, brought life. And so everyone is in Adam. And, and as a result, we are all in our sin. The Bible describes that state, the natural man being in Adam, as a place of spiritual death separation from from a holy God and um, really a state of rebelliousness and, and, and incapability, inability to, to please God or know God savingly. That is what it means to be an Adam, and that, that is the whole human race. But then, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ comes life, and now we are made alive in Him. So just as all who are in Adam are dead spiritually and, and will eventually die physically, and then there is an eternal death that the Bible describes as a place of torment and separation from God and, and a place called hell. All of those who are in Christ shall be made alive, shall be made alive by the Spirit, and will no longer be separated from a holy God under the wrath of a holy God, but will be forgiven and cleansed and justified and glorified in the resurrection of Christ, in the resurrection of the dead. And then he says in verse 23, But each one in his own order, Christ the first fruits, and after those who are Christ at his coming. So Christ will be the first, and then when Christ comes again, there will be the great resurrection of the living and the dead could really go off into that one, but we don't really have time to start getting into um, a lot of the, the end time stuff there, but very fascinating. All right, so moving on to the next uh, portion here, we're going to see how Christ has conquered, how Christ has conquered through the resurrection, and this is verses 24 through 28. So, um, there at the end of verse 23, he says, Christ is the first fruits, and afterward those who are Christ at his coming. And then verse 24 says, Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power. So there will come a time when Christ's job will be done, and he will have conquered. Then comes the end, and he will deliver the kingdom back to God the Father, because the Bible says, Jesus said when he rose from the grave, right before he ascended into heaven, that all authority has been given to him in heaven and on earth. It is all his. God has exalted the Son. The Father has exalted the Son to the highest place as the King of kings and the Lord of lords, Jesus Christ, the one to whom every knee will bow in earth, on heaven, and under the earth. 
He has made Christ to conquer and to reign by virtue of the resurrection. And then in verse 25, it says, For he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. For he has put all things under his feet. But when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. That's a kind of complicated sentence there. But essentially, Paul says here that he must reign. He will reign until he has conquered every single foe, until every enemy is put under his feet. And then the, the ultimate enemy and the final enemy is death itself. Death will be thrown into the lake of fire. And then all is put under his feet. And then it says it is evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. And so I, I, guess, I think the idea here is that in, in light of all of this, it's, it's evident to all that Christ indeed was accepted by the Father and all that he has accomplished in his conquering and in his victory, and he was exalted to the highest place as the conquering and reigning king. But then in verse 28, it says, Now when all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. And so there's going to come a time when Christ will exalt the Father, and he will Everything that, that Christ has achieved, everything that Christ has accomplished, everything that, that Christ has won, He will give back to the Father, and the Father will reign on high. And, and so we see this, uh, the subjection of the Son to the Father. There's, there's this uh, the eternal subordination of the Son to the Father. That does not mean some type of inferiority. It simply means that the Son has honored the Father, and you, you just see that in the Trinity. It's it's so amazing how every member of the Trinity is so others focused. You know, the most Christ-centered and Christ-exalted persons are the Father and the Spirit, and and round and round it goes. And you just see how they honor each other. And so, the Father has exalted the Son, and the Son uh, conquers and reigns, and and will put every enemy to death. And then He will exalt the Father and. The Father will be all in all and will reign on high in glory and splendor for all of eternity. And we will worship him as such because of what Christ has done as he has conquered through the resurrection. All right, that brings us to our next portion. It's kind of interesting. Basically, how I have uh, titled this is basically what Paul is saying here is that what is the point if there is no resurrection? What is the point if there is no resurrection? Verse 29. He says, Otherwise, what will they do who are baptized for the dead if the dead do not rise at all? Why then are they baptized for the dead? Now, that's a very weird verse. And it, it sounds like what Paul is saying is that there's some kind of practice going on there where people are being baptized um, kind of um, on behalf of people who have already died. And so obviously, the Bible does not in any way teach or endorse that kind of a practice. And I have heard different scholars and commentators talk about what this, what this could actually mean. But I, I think, and I could be wrong on this, and uh, I've heard other commentators say that essentially this may have been something that was happening 
and it's not something that Paul endorsed, and it's certainly not something that any of the Old Testament or New Testament writers would in any way uh, endorse, but um, what Paul's essentially getting at is if you don't believe in the resurrection, then why do you even do that? You know, it's not like Paul is saying that that's a valid practice, but if people were being somehow baptized kind of in the place of or for those who had already died as though somehow vicariously uh, that was going to be of some kind of benefit, he was like, if you don't believe in a resurrection, then what, why would you even do that? And so he's basically pointing out perhaps an a, a inconsistency or a contradiction in their own thinking. You're being baptized on the behalf of the dead, yet you don't believe there is a resurrection. So what's up with that, essentially? And so that makes sense to me. And that's, that's the, the best that I, uh, I can make of that. So moving on, verse 30, it says, And why do we stand in jeopardy every hour? I affirm by the boasting in you which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. If, in the manner of men, I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantage is it to me? If the dead do not rise, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. So Paul's like, what's the point of everything that I'm going through? I, I, you know, Paul suffered tremendously, and we know this. And he said, if there is no resurrection, why, why do I even do this? What would be the point? You know, I've, I've endured and, and fought against the beasts in Ephesus. That's most likely a reference to a, a pagan mob there that, that rose up and tried to, to take Paul out. And he was like, you know, what, what, what would be the reason of me enduring such things if the dead do not rise? In fact, if there is nothing to look forward to and all that we have is here, then let's just eat and drink and be merry for tomorrow we die. And so Paul's essentially... He's kind of saying this, obviously, in jest, and there's a, a tone of mocking going on here. But he's just saying, look, if there is no resurrection and there is no hope, then why do we go through what we go through in this life? Why don't we just live for today because tomorrow we die and then there is nothing afterward? And then in verse 33, he says, Do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. Awake to righteousness and do not sin, for some do not have the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. And so it's saying, look, do not be deceived, okay? Don't let people somehow pull you away from believing in and trusting in the resurrection. This is, we cling to the resurrection. Our hope is in the resurrection. He said, evil company corrupts good habits. There are people in their midst who are trying to feed them false false ideas about the the resurrection and they were succumbing to it they were buying into it and he said don't do that don't be deceived don't be corrupted uh, by evil by evil company and influence awake to righteousness do not sin and so again paul states that if there is no resurrection then there is no point but there is the resurrection. And so for that reason, Paul did suffer and Paul did endure and Paul did not just live. If there was ever a person who did not live simply for the here and now, it was the Apostle Paul. And so Paul is, is, is validated in that. And he said, look, you are too. We have tremendous hope in the resurrection in the future because of what Christ has done and because of what God has for us. And so we're living to that end. We're living for that purpose, and if we didn't have that, we would have nothing. 
So now, moving on, Paul is going to begin to talk about the glorification of the human body through the resurrection. Uh, I think that at this point right here, this, is, this really gets to, the, to the, the core of the problem that the Corinthian Christians were having um, with, with the, uh, the resurrection, trying to somehow make sense of the, the body that we're in now, this corrupt body that is only becoming more corrupt as time goes on, and the, and the resurrected body. How does that work? How do we reconcile the two? And so Paul addresses that here, and this is a pretty lengthy portion right here, and it can get, it can get pretty, uh, pretty heavy and, and pretty complex. So God have mercy on us as we work through these verses. All right, 35. But someone will say... How are the dead raised up? And with what body do they come? Foolish one, what you sow is not made alive unless it dies. And what you sow, you do not now sow that body that shall be, but mere grain, perhaps wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he pleases, and to each seed its own body. So now, again, this is an agricultural uh, term or idea, and in fact, it seems to be borrowed from Jesus Christ. When Jesus talked about his death and resurrection, he likened it to a, a seed uh, or a grain of wheat. He said it must go into the ground and it must die. And then when it does, it will spring forth and produce a crop. And so uh, Jesus likened that to his death and resurrection. And that is essentially what happens with a a seed that is planted. It dies, it splits, and then it begins to sprout. And so there is this process. And so Jesus says that death must come first. And so Paul seems to be borrowing that same language there and that same idea. And he says, this body, which is corruptible, must perish. And so God has given us this body for this purpose, and it will perish, but then God will, from that, give us a new body that will spring forth, that will be incorruptible because of what Christ has done. So Paul kind of starts by making that that illustration from nature, and he'll continue on with these uh, illustrations from nature, but he kind of starts there. He kind of gives almost um, a picture, an illustration, a parable, if you will, of the body, as it were, and how it must first perish and die, but then there will come a harvest, the resurrected body. In verse 39, he says, All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one kind of flesh of men, another flesh of animals, another of fish, and another of birds. There are also celestial bodies and terrestrial bodies, but the glory of the celestial is one and the glory of the terrestrial is another. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars. For one star differs from another star in glory. So essentially, what Paul is talking about here is you have all of the the host of heaven. You have the stars, the moon, you have, you know, all that God has created there. You have birds of the air, you have fish, you have humans. He's given them all a body. He has given them all a body that is, that is very sufficient for the purpose for which God has created them. And they are all very different, but they are all glorious in their own unique way. And so God has given us an earthly body that is sufficient 
for, for what God has called us to here on this earth. But this body is perishing, it's fading, and God will give us a heavenly body. Paul talks about how we are in a tent. Uh, he likens our earthly bodies to that of a tent. And, you know, those tents can get kind of leaky. They can begin to be weather-beaten, and they can begin to perish. But God is going to give us a heavenly home, a heavenly body uh, when we get to heaven. And that's, that's significant because people I know worry about <clears throat> what happens in cremation, what happens in, in a variety of situations when the body is absolutely destroyed? What then? But Paul says, look, God is not hindered. God, God calls everything out of nothing. You know, God can do that. And God has given us a body that is sufficient for uh, this time, but God will give us a heavenly body, a resurrected body, and so that is, that is our hope. And so in verse 42, he says, So also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. It is sown, and so still using this language of sowing here, sowing seeds and reaping a harvest. Verse 43, it is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown as a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. So Paul's answering their question here. Yes, the flesh is corrupt. And we know this. We know this, that in this flesh dwells no good thing. And we do long for the day when we will be set free from this flesh. Paul talks about the sin that wars against his, his members and that there's this law that he finds in himself, this law of sin and death. And though his inner man is being renewed day by day in Christ, and he longs for the things of Christ, yet in his flesh there is this battle because the flesh wants sin. The flesh wants that which is opposed to God, which is exactly what Paul talks about in Galatians, where he says that, you know, walk by the Spirit, the spirit, it, it basically wars against the flesh, and the flesh against the spirit. There is this battle going on, and there will come a day when we will be set free from this flesh, and we will be given a spiritual, it is a physical body, <clears throat> but it's very spiritual in the, at the same time. We will be glorified. We will be set free from the flesh. There will be no death. There will be no disease. There will be no decay. There will be no sin. It will be <clears throat> glory. And then he goes on in verse 45 and says, And so it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. So now we're kind of back to the, the first Adam, second Adam thing with uh, Adam and Jesus. He says, And so it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first but the natural, and afterward the spiritual. So again, the first man, Adam, through him came, came all who, who are alive on the earth today in a, in, a, in a very physical sense, okay? The whole human race was born. But then came the life-giving spirit. And so see, we, you must be born again. And, and I think this is just a fitting place to say this. If you are in Adam then you must be born again of the Spirit of God. 
because the Bible describes the person who is in Adam but not in Christ as dead in their trespass, dead in their sin, dead in their rebellion against God, totally in, not able, unable, incapable of pleasing God or, or, or knowing God savingly, as I have already stated. And so you must be born again. And that's what Jesus was talking about with Nicodemus in John chapter 3. That which is flesh is flesh. That which is spirit is spirit. And so if you're in Adam, you are flesh. You are alive physically, but dead spiritually. But Christ died, rose again from the dead, ascended to the Father, and sent the Holy Spirit. So that when we call upon the name of Jesus for salvation, when we, when we turn from our sin, when we cry out for forgiveness to God, and we... we ask Jesus to, to be our Savior, to save us, to be our Lord, the Bible says that we're born again, that the Holy Spirit comes within us, and we're regenerated, we're made new, we're made alive. Now we are alive in the Spirit. Now we're twice born, born physically and born spiritually. And that must be. You must be born again. You must be born of the Spirit. If you are once born, you will die twice. You will die physically, and you will die forever, spiritually, eternally. But if you are twice born, you will die once. If you are born of the flesh and born of the Spirit, you will die physically and live forever spiritually. Live forever in a physical glorified body, but in a, in a place of eternal glory and paradise with the Father and the Son and the Spirit. And so that must be, you must be born again. He goes on in verse 47, The first man was of the earth, made of dust. The second man is the Lord from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are made of dust. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. So the Bible teaches that God, God from the dust of the earth, he breathed into the dust and formed man, formed Adam. And then he took, took something from Adam's side. The Bible says took a rib and, and from man came woman and he made Eve. And so we are, we are dust, the Bible says. And from dust we have come and to dust we will return. And it's fascinating, but... That is exactly what it is. Uh, a, a body that is buried several years later, they decompose and they turn into dust. Um, skin particles, you know, dust in your house, that's skin particles. I don't mean to gross you out, but I'm just telling you, the Bible says that we, are, we come from dust and we return to dust. We will return to dust. And so we must be born again spiritually. We must be born again by the second Adam the heavenly man, and so that um, just as we, we are from dust, we will be made into the image of the heavenly man, and we will be glorified, and we will be resurrected in our new heavenly body, our new heavenly building, as it were. All right, next, moving on, verses 50 through 53, we're almost to the end here, coming down the home stretch. This is the mystery of the resurrection. The mystery of the resurrection. 
Verse 50 says, Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption that this mortal uh, and this mortal must put on immortality. And so Paul says, look, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. <clears throat> That's as I have already said. If you are born once and only once, you are not born again by the spirit. You will not inherit the kingdom of God. You must be born again. You must be born spiritually. The corruptible has to put on incorruption, as it were. And he says, I'm telling you a mystery. Now, when you hear the word mystery in the New Testament, that does not mean something that is now hidden and that you have to try to figure it out, but it's always elusive, always evading your ability to understand it. When the New Testament talks about a mystery, what it is essentially saying is that this is something that was hidden, this is something that, that had not been revealed in the Old Testament or through creation, but now it is revealed. Now the veil has been pulled back. Now this has been brought to your understanding. And so, though it's just called a mystery, essentially what it's saying is, is it, this is something that is now being, being uh, revealed to you. It was hidden, but it's not anymore. And what is this mystery? The mystery is that of the rapture. And that's what these verses are here. He's saying, look, if Christ returns well, and you're still here, you're just going to be changed. You're going to be translated. It's going to happen in the blink of an eye, uh, as it were. And that, that's kind of the idea. And in, in the twinkling of an eye, it's going to be just that fast. As fast as you blink, you're going to change. Is that amazing to consider? And so this has now been revealed in the New Testament when the trumpet sounds. And so obviously people parse this a million different ways and we have folks who have very different ideas about how end time events will unfold and and chronologically but we believe that um, there is a seven-year tribulation at the end and uh, there's going to be three and a half years of prosperity the antichrist will be here on the earth and everyone is going to worship him as as the christ essentially they're going to believe that he is the savior of the world and three and a half years in, he's going to do something so atrocious, everyone's going to know he's not who they thought he was. And then all hell will break loose on the earth. And for three and a half years, God's wrath will be poured out on the earth. And all of that is chronicled for us in the book of Revelation. But Paul says that we're going to be raptured out. We're going to be caught up. And First Thessalonians talks about this at length and, and some other places in the New Testament. And so... Um, that is our hope in this life, is that uh, when we die, we will be resurrected. But there may even come a point where we're resurrected in this life, where we are translated at the, the blast of the trumpet there. And the dead, or the, the incorruptible, will, uh, the corruptible, excuse me, will, will become incorruptible and the mortal will put on immortality and that that is that indeed is a glorious truth 
a glorious mystery that has been revealed to us. We are such a privileged people, and, and this is intended to give us hope. And that, that's what all of this is. It's all to the end that we would have hope, that we have hope in this life, hope in the next. Because Christ has risen, we too shall rise. And, and even if we die, we know what happens next. And if Christ comes back before we die, we know what happens. In a twinkling of an eye, in the blink of an eye, we will be glorified. We will change. And then lastly, we've already alluded to this a little bit, but uh, verses 54 through 58, what we will see is the death of death itself. The death of death through the resurrection. Now, I borrowed that partially from a book written by uh, John Owen, and it is The Death of Death and the Cross of Christ. It's a great title, great book, but this is uh, similar to that, The Death of Death Through the Resurrection. Verse 54, So when this corruptible has put on incorruption, and this mortal has put on immortality, Then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. So there will be this final victory when death itself is swallowed up. And I love that. Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. And so here in this life, there is sin, there is death, but we know that Jesus has died and has risen again into the newness of life, and that as we have trusted in Him, death has lost its sting. Death has lost its sting, for we don't mourn as those who have no hope, because we believe in the resurrection. We know that our loved ones who have trusted Christ and gone before us will be risen into the newness of life, and we know that we too shall rise and that we will see them again. And we know that one day death itself will be cast into the lake, and there will be no more death. Even death itself will die and will be gone forevermore. And this is all because of Christ. This is all because of what He has accomplished. He came to this earth. He, he left His heavenly glory with the Father. And He came here and He lived a perfect life of obedience unto God's law in every single way, in every single facet. He revealed God's character, God's nature, God's heart, God's truth to us in a more perfect way. And then he died there on the cross. He died a sinner's death, the death that he did not deserve. He died in our stead, the death that we deserved. And he he suffered the wrath of God on himself that was meant for us. He drank the cup of God's wrath for us so that we would not have to drink that cup. And then Christ's perfection his perfect keeping of the law, his sinlessness was given to us as a gift for those who have believed on the name of Jesus Christ unto life. And then we're born again by the Spirit, and we are alive in him. And God is no longer a judge, but he is our heavenly Father who loves us. 
and has sealed us by His Holy Spirit until the day of redemption. And we look to the day when we will pass from this life to the next. Whether Christ returns while we're here in this life or if we go to be with Him first, we know that we will rise again. We will be raised into the newness of life and we will forever worship Him in glory and there will be no more suffering, no more loss, no more sorrow, no more pain, no more questions, no more doubt, no more fear. There will be only perfect love and perfect peace, perfect unity and perfect harmony, perfect glory with the Father and with the Son and the Spirit. And that is our hope in the resurrection. So whatever you're going through in this life right now, there's a lot going on in the world in which we live and in the time that we live. There's a lot of anger. There's a lot of suspicion. There's a lot of confusion. There's a lot of hate. There's a lot of hostility and violence. There's a lot of doubt. There's a lot of disbelief. But you know, there is hope. There is hope. There is hope in this life, in Christ, but our ultimate hope is in the next life when all of that will be washed away and even death itself will be gone and we will be raised incorruptible and we will be with Christ because of what He has accomplished for us. It's all Him. It's all Him. Praise be to God. It's all by His grace. And there's nothing that we could add to it. There's nothing that we can do. It's purely a gift from God to us in Christ by grace. And so we celebrate that today. We remember that. We thank God for it. We praise Him for it. And let that be what drives you in this life. And it's so hard. It's so hard not to get distracted and to forget uh, the, the beauty of this and how this is intended to be a message of hope and to give us life really here and now to cause us to continue to move forward. But I pray that God would restore that for us and that we wouldn't be living merely for the here and now, but we would be living also for the there and then because of our hope in the resurrection. So praise God for Jesus Christ. Praise God for the resurrection of Christ. Praise God for His Holy Spirit that regenerates us and keeps us. And praise God for the day that we will see Him face to face in glory in our new bodies that are, have been won for us in Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we love You. And we thank you, Lord, that though this body is perishing, one day we will have a glorious heavenly body. Lord, not only will we have a new body, but there will be a new heaven and a new earth. And we will inhabit the new earth. And it's going to be a glorious place beyond anything that the mind can even fathom. And so I thank you, Father, for your creation. I thank you for creating us. I thank you for saving us, Lord. I thank you that we have the hope of a new body. And I thank you that we have the hope of a new, a new earth that we will live in, where we will be able to walk with you and worship you and enjoy cre- your glorious creation forevermore without sin, without death, without sickness, without unbelief. What a glorious day that will be, Lord when you reign and rule in righteousness on earth. And it is going to be a glorious kingdom of, of righteousness, as I said, and we look forward to that. Lord, we hunger and thirst for that. And we thank you that we have that hope, God. In Jesus' name, amen.